My guest today is Dr. Beth Allison Barr. She is Associate Professor of History at Baylor University, where she also serves as Associate Dean of the Graduate School. The purpose of our conversation today is to discuss her forthcoming uh, book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Beth, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the arguments of your book blew my mind and, and Melissa as well. Yeah, um, y'all, y'all just finished it, didn't you? I saw on Twitter, you just finished it. So <laughs> We read the last chapter this morning. No. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. You're still talking. <laughs> right, yeah. One thing I really like about the argument of the book is, uh, is how some of this, particularly in conservative evangelical circles, and sort of devolves into uh, like proof texts, right? And there are the established uh, readings of the proof texts at the kinds of institutions where right. uh, this, this sort of stuff uh, comes from, right? And so a lot of that is sort of at a certain point, it's just kind of pointless. Right, right. Uh, yeah, that, yes. And, that and, it, and I feel like your argument just sort of, I mean, you touch on it a little bit, right? And you touch on the history of those debates, but yeah, your argument sort of sidesteps all of that. So right. I wonder if you might talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, so what's funny, when I first decided I was going to do this book and I signed the contract with Brazos, and I remember I was, my husband and I, we were in, we live actually, I don't know if you know this, we're faculty in residence. So we actually live in an apartment um, in a undergraduate dormitory. So we have like this huge space, which is our kitchen and living room all together. So I was in the kitchen and I was making my coffee and my husband was on his computer. He wasn't looking at me at all. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to talk about Paul. I'm just tired of talking about Paul because this is just a gridlock. And my husband, he doesn't even look at me. He just says, it's not going to work. And I was like, well, what do you mean it's not going to work? And he says, if you don't convince them, if you don't help people understand how their historical world has framed the way they view Paul, he said, you're not going to get them to move past it. Because he said, the key here is that people think that this is biblical. They think biblical womanhood and male um, headship is biblical. And he said, so you have to help them or at least begin to help them see that the way they've understood these biblical texts is actually not from the Bible itself. So I kind of, I was like, oh, okay, because I don't, I didn't really want to do it. I'm not a um, New Testament scholar. And even though I firmly believe, and as I show in the book, as I firmly believe that the problem with these biblical texts is that we have completely taken them out of context and that we have become so ingrained in really, I mean, this fight that has been going on for a few decades now. And we let, like, for example, um, we let ourselves get into these debates over whether Ephesians 5.21 is the same sentence as Ephesians 5.22, uh, when the reality is, is that the manuscripts, the earliest manuscript, you know, we have one really early manuscript that shows no break. And then the later manuscripts where we see this break continuously. And so I suspect probably they weren't separated in the beginning, but there's only one manuscript that suggests that. But really, it doesn't matter because that whole chapter is telling us, you know, this idea that we should all, it's reframing what they thought about their Roman world. You know, in the Roman world, you were taught that husbands have complete authority over their wives. In the Christian world, yes, you have to uphold this Roman framework, um, 
because this is the world in which we live, but we're going to make it, we're going to do it Jesus style. You know, everybody has to remember that they submit to each other. And even though wives submit to their husbands, husbands need to also submit to their wives and husbands need to love their wives instead of wielding the power of life and death over them. So it doesn't matter if 521 is the same sentence as 522, but we let these arguments and we let, you know, sort of this proof texting completely derail us from the point of the passage. So I think that's one of the things that has frustrated me for so long. And, you know, as a woman myself growing up and this becoming harder and harder, you know, these lines being drawn harder and harder for us, I'm kind of tired of being hit over the head with these, you know, with these, um, these not really significant arguments about Greek grammar. So because I, they just miss the point. Well, it's this sort of reinforcing a hierarchical approach to yes. all kinds of normative questions, right? Like yes. who, who tells us uh, what's the correct way to interpret this or that passage? Well, it's the people who are who have authority in yeah. th in these spaces. And uh, big surprise, right? Their interpretation uh, confirms that they indeed should be an authority. Yes. So you know, and that is also part of what I was trying to do with this book too. Is I think a missing piece in this whole argument. Um, over how to interpret the biblical text about women is the historical piece. We have put this to the side. And, and if you look at seminaries and church history textbooks, they mostly are not written by historians. They mostly do not bring in the most recent scholarship. Um, and, and, you know, this is something that's so funny to me because there is so much historical evidence out there that Christians have completely misread. The New Testament, and we're not paying attention to it because it's not in our, it's not being taught to us. And so that was part of what I was trying to do too, is just like, let's shift our focus and let's see what everybody else in the world knows. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I, so I was sort of, you know, like the first chapter or two of the book, maybe it was the introduction. Um, I was sort of, you know, settling in right, right. To, to sort of like okay so we're, we're gonna get the setup here for the argument and it I mean it clicked into place way sooner than I expected right when you sort of like you know folks think that there's something like countercultural about right. being patriarchal yeah. when in fact like that's just been the, that's just been the norm it's the for norm of history yeah. And, and that's what's so funny. And that really is, um, you know, my first chapter, the creation of patriarchy, I knew I had to do two things with it. And the first thing is I knew that most Christians, most evangelicals who would be reading my book approach the idea of patriarchy with hostility, or at least great wariness, because they approach it from the sense that this is a feminist agenda that's driven by people who have nothing to do with Jesus. And so I, and this is the way my students often come into my classes with sort of this wariness, like, oh my gosh, this is a crazy feminist liberal agenda. So I had to reframe, you know, like what really is patriarchy? What are we talking about? And the fact is, is that it has existed long before the feminist, you know, really the third wave um, uh, feminism, which is, you know, late, early 2000s and even the second wave in the 60s and 70s. And so... This is something that women have been dealing with for forever. 
And it is scary when we look at, when we take like Piper and Grudem's um, discussions about what women should do and what their place is supposed to do. And you compare that to things like the code of Hammurabi and you're like, it's the same thing. And it's like <laughs> what this, ha- you know, we have to understand that patriarchy is not anything new. It is not countercultural. It is simply acting like the way everyone has acted for the past 4,000 years. So, so one thing that I've been sort of processing for, I guess, the last couple of years is, I guess, I started paying attention to the, the gender aspect of these things, mm-hmm. apologies, like a few years ago. <laughs> and uh, I just thought a lot of it was just sort of in bad faith on the other side, right? Uh, and by that, by that, I mean this, by that, yeah. I mean this, like, like, so people who suggest that perhaps there should be uh, some institutional reforms around how issues of abuse and reporting abuse mm-hmm. are handled, right? People arguing for that get labeled as feminists. And I thought, right. well, that's, I mean, they don't, they don't actually, what? Right. But like, no, they actually think that there's something feminist about that. Right. Because yeah. it threatens the hierarchy. Yes, that's it. It's a term. And th- And this is something too, you know, I sort of, I see this all the time with women um, who have been recognizing that there's something terribly wrong with this system for a long time, but they are afraid, they don't know how to speak out about it. Because if you speak out in any sort of way, the the thing that they immediately do is label you as feminist. I mean, all you have to do is read Denny Burke's Twitter thread. And that's what he does to people. He labels them. And so actually one of the things that I decided to do was come out the gate and say, hello, y'all, I'm a feminist but I am a Christian feminist and, you know, you can label me that, but that's okay because it's not your label on me. It's my label. And the reason I am is because Jesus has always fought for women and everything Jesus has done is revolutionary towards women. And that is feminist. That is trying to overthrow the system that says that simply because the way you are made, you are less than men. And that's the system that the world teaches, and that's the system that complementarianism has bought into. Um, so I decided to claim that label for myself and to go out there and let people realize that being a feminist, being a Christian feminist, is not antithetical to being somebody who believes in the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus and believes that the Bible is completely trustworthy. It's just that we have read the Bible. We have read the Bible through the lens of our world rather than through the lens of the Bible. So I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between hierarchy and ways of knowing and ways of uh, arriving at like moral truth or truth about yeah. scripture, right? Because those, th- th- those things seem really difficult to unpick for, for people who are in that sort of mindset. I wonder if you might talk about that. So are you talking about the way that the hierarchy, in many ways, the way that we understand scripture, despite the fact that Protestants claim that um, everyone can read the Bible for themselves, we still mostly read it through the lens of those who are in control. Is that what you're asking about? Right. Yeah, no. And I mean, this is something that I think... I mean, the pattern in this is very, very clear throughout Christian history. And one of the things I find ironic um, as a Protestant, as an evangelical myself who studies medieval Catholicism, is that a lot of the things that we 
we look back and we say, oh my gosh, the Catholic church was horrible in the way that it did this, the way that it controlled the narrative, which it didn't do the way we think it did, but that's the Protestant myth, um, but that it controlled the narrative. And then I'm like, well, my gosh, how many of you got your narrative from the Schofield Study Bible? Um, how many of you only read the John MacArthur Study Bible? You're doing the same thing that, you know, medieval, that you're accusing medieval Christians of having done. You're reading the Bible, not through your understanding of it, but through somebody else's understanding of it. Um, in fact, I saw something great on Twitter the other day, and it said, um, you know, it says, I'm an inerrantist because I believe in the Bible but I don't believe in the inerrancy of human interpretation. And I was like, that is fantastic because that's what we've done. We have said, when people say they're an inerrantist, they're really not saying I believe in the Bible. What they're saying is I believe the way the Bible has been interpreted by these early 20th century white men who were in charge. And then that interpretation has stayed with us. And I said, that's when people talk about inerrancy, that's what they're really talking about. Um, and those white men were produced in a culture that believed that women were created differently from men and that they were created to be primarily for home and family. And part of this came out of the scientific revolution and what we understand about women's bodies. Um, and so, you know, and we just don't understand that today, that we have missed that piece of history and we have gotten beaten over the head by those sort of in control who control the, the narrative. And they're like, oh my gosh, you can't listen to this person because they don't believe in inerrancy. They don't believe in the Bible. Therefore they are on the outs. I mean, we're letting other people define for us what Christian orthodoxy is when Christian orthodoxy is believing who Jesus is. Conservative evangelicalism is sort of at the moment living up to its own caricatures of the situation mm -hmm. in the Catholic church. Yeah. Uh, prior is. to the Reformation. And, and of course, I mean, so as you say, they're caricatures to begin with, right. right? But there's also the fact that the Catholic Church had a counter-Reformation. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. talk about that. No, no. I mean, I think that's, in fact, I have, I kind of put it on hold when I started this. If you look you know, the making of biblical womanhood was born in my blogs on the anxious bench. And if you actually look before I, before 2017, 2017 is when I really started writing the blogs that eventually helped launch the making of biblical womanhood. If you look before that, what you'll see is me doing a lot of medieval Christianity stuff. And I still do that a little bit in like 2017 um, and even a little bit in 2018, but there's a thread there. One of the things that I picked up on really early on, and I've been watching this too, especially because I grew up Baptist. We haven't always been Baptist. We had, you know, sort of this where we were like, well, it doesn't really matter anymore. And so we can go be Bible church for a while, but now we're back totally Baptist. But one of the things that I've noticed that bothers me as a Baptist is this growth of what is really Presbyterian structure that has been implemented in Baptist churches where you get, instead of deacons, we now have these elder boards and with the pastors on these elder boards and sort of this, I mean, it's, it's not exactly Presbyterian because there's not a council above them, but there still is sort of this much more closed structure rather than the much more sort of open. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, the deacon meetings would be held in this room in our church that had windows around it and they would leave the door open and people could come and watch. People could come and sit outside. And that's like, I don't think people do that anymore. Maybe some very old Southern Baptist churches, but that's something that seems to have disappeared, the sort of transparency that used to be there. So we have created this more top-down hierarchical 
structure that has infiltrated even into our evangelical churches. And with this hierarchical top-down structure, we also have this idea that you obey the leadership. You don't question them. I mean, this is something that we heard ourselves that, you know, when we challenged the leadership in our church, the what we were given, the words we were given is that we said, in no point does anyone challenge, you know, the pastor in this way. And I'm sitting here thinking, so are you the Pope? You know, is why, why do you not get to be, why, what, what about you makes you more efficacious and able to, you know, give this ruling for everyone in the church without anybody questioning it? I'm like, that's not Protestant. That's not evangelical. That's not priesthood of all believers. That sounds a whole lot like what was going on in the, in the 14th and 15th centuries. And one of my favorite teaching pieces, and I've, I've written about it a little bit. I'm probably going to do more with it, but it's written by a guy named Petrarch um, in the 14th century. And he is, the, Aven the papacy has actually isn't in Rome anymore. There's all these, it's moved to France and it's the Avignon papacy. The 14th century is a horrible time for the medieval church. And so it's in France. It's not where it's supposed to be. And Petrarch writes this letter where he is essentially critiquing and he's just, he's sick to his stomach because of what the Catholic church has become. And he has these lines in it. He says, oh ye, you know, he says, you know, is this the legacy of the disciples of Jesus who walked barefoot through the streets. And he says, oh, ye emaciated and unkept old men who are devouring the souls of believers for essentially your own power and riches. And I'm like, well, hello, Mark Driscoll. Hello, Paige Patterson. You know, isn't that what we've done in our church? We are for the sake of power and this hierarchy, we are telling Christians not to question it, and then we are destroying them. Um, the sex abuse scandals just show us how hor horrific this has become. So I'll stop there. Obviously, I could continue on with that for a long time. Well, uh, so it occurs to me that there's this really uh, I th fairly tight analogy uh, between, so on the one hand, we all know or know of pastors who have, uh, in their efforts to lead a church, neglected their own children. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it seems to me that what we have is these sort of uh, self-appointed spokesmen. Yes. In their effort to uh, lead the country. I don't know uh, yeah. exactly what it is they think they're doing, but, but in, their, in their effort to grasp at uh, political power, they, they're... they're they either are too myopic to see that kids are just leaving and have no interest in coming back or right. they don't care. Yeah. You know, I don't think, I think they're not seeing, I think they're not realizing what the problem is. Um, and, you know, I mean, we, when we first started out in ministry, my husband got advice from a pastor very early on. And, you know, he was told, he said, look, when you become a pastor of a church, it doesn't matter if you're on family vacation. It doesn't matter if you're at your kid's birthday party. If somebody in the church needs you, you leave and you go. And I was like, what a horrible thing to tell 
a pastor. I was like, what is it? And even then I wasn't entirely, I knew it was bad advice. I didn't, I was really young, didn't entirely understand why it was such horrific advice, but it really is. I mean, you can see this, this power and this, that is invested in the hands of our pastors and this idea that they are the only spiritual counselors who can go. And I mean, it's not that they shouldn't be there for the people in their church, um, but at the same time, there's nothing more efficacious about their prayers than the prayers of anybody. I mean, this to me is so funny. It's like, why do we only ask ordained people to pray as Baptists? Everybody's prayers count just like, you know, the pastors do. There's no, there's no extra special spiritual power, but we're acting like there is. And what this does is that it teaches, it teaches pastors who are mostly men that they do wield this type of authority, that there is something that makes them spiritually better than other people in their congregation. Um, and this even carries out into complementarian structures. I mean, one of the things that I find most horrific about complementarian teachings and the church that we were at, um, it had a rule that women could not teach boys over the age of 13, you know, 13, I mean, which, and if you, if you think about this, what is that telling 13 year old boys who are mostly white because they are, it's mostly white evangelicalism that does this. And it's telling them that there is something innately about them that makes them be more authoritative than their mothers, than their sisters, than the other women, that there is something about the way they are born that gives them power over women. And this is why I really hit hard in the book. You know, I actually like Russell Moore. I think he's done some wonderful things, but I think he's done a lot of damage in arguing that Christian patriarchy is different from what he calls pagan patriarchy. And he says, you know, women are not called to submit to all men. They're only called to submit to their husbands. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't work because what you are really saying, if you are saying that women for some reason are unable to wield authority in the same ways as men, then you are saying that all women are underneath all men. And, and that's what we see playing out in practice in the way that women are treated in our churches. Um, and then we also see it, you know, patriarchy and racism have always been connected. And when you teach 13 year old white boys that there's something innately about them that makes them better than women, is it any surprise that we see them passing this along to people of color? I mean, I, we need to ask ourselves these hard questions. Yeah, so, so, the, so the discussions around justice and uh, in particular justice on racial issues, that's another area where I'm, I, my initial inclination was to think, well, they're just, you know, the people that have problems with like saying that Black Lives Matter, this kind of thing, like they're just arguing in bad faith. Like they don't, they don't right. actually, like they don't actually... And, and I mean, there may be ways in which they are, right? But there are certain kinds of statements, like basically where they're putting justice at odds with some kind of moral order, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I used to just think like, well, they're just like making this up. Like, why are they saying this kind of stuff? That's obviously absurd, right? Um, but they actually think because they associate like moral order so closely right. with an established yes. order, they act, and justice yes. says, well, we should just give people what they deserve. Right. Right. Uh, They actually do think these things are at odds. Yes. Yeah. No. And, you know, I've I've really grappled with this, too, because 
I mean, I still remember when, when everything, and when we were in the church that we ended up getting pushed out of, um, and we were still there, one of the most painful things for us, for me especially, was the people in the church who knew, they didn't know exactly what had happened yet because we, we were told we couldn't talk about it, but they knew something was going on. They had known us for years. They knew what type of people we were, but yet they wouldn't speak up for us. They wouldn't go and stand, you know, they just would say, oh, I'm really sorry that this is happening, you know, but they wouldn't do, they, I mean, they just, they just watched it and it was like, oh, okay, finally they're gone. Now we can get on with the rest of our lives. And this, I comes from very bad teachings that the church has put out there. I mean, so I think, I think most people, most people believe they, they truly believe that Christianity is tied up with this type of justice um, that is not really Christian um, at all, and that is tied up in this hierarchy that some people are created better than other people. I mean, you know, Southern Baptists, and this is why Beth Moore said one of the reasons she was leaving is because the past of the Southern Baptists is still with them. The past that is buried in imperialism and racism, as well as patriarchy, that's what the Southern Baptist Church was built on, and it's still there, and it is still intertwined because you cannot separate out those teachings. And so for generations, we have been teaching, the white church has been teaching, has been teaching our children that God makes some people better than other people, and that this, that God ordains that really that those people who are better than other people deserve to be in charge and deserve to maintain this moral order. And that has been taught by the church. And so even though I get really upset and irritated with my fellow Christians, at the same time, it's not, we shouldn't, that's, those aren't the people we should blame. We need to blame the people who have been teaching this, these false teachers who keep saying that people like me are false teachers. <laughs> <laughs> but you know well, they've got it wrong. Well, that's um, that's the first thing the so, false teachers do in scripture, yeah, right? Is they accuse yeah. they, they accuse uh, everyone else. Yeah, everyone else being false teachers. <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, I think it's the top. We've got to change the top. We've got to change the structure at the top, um, which means that really we are due for a reformation um, within. And I I think that reckoning is coming. I think um, it's we can no longer deny a connection between um, abuse, racism, um, misogyny, and the what and the doctrine that we have been teaching in white evangelical churches. I mean, even we're all still reeling from the, you know, the shooting yesterday. I mean, is it's not a surprise to me that it is white men who keep doing these things because this is this is the world in which they are taught, these white um, evangelical men. And this is the world in which they are taught. So, I, di I didn't know there was a shooting yesterday. In Georgia. And they've tied it. I was looking at the news this morning. I have only read some of the news this morning, but it seems to be a Southern Baptist uh, pastor's son who did it. Hmm. So, you know, it's just something's wrong with our theology. And we, we won't admit it. And we keep putting up walls and saying, you know, we have the truth. We are interpreting the Bible wrong. We are interpreting the Bible correctly. And I'm like, then why is our fruit so bad? Why do we have over 700 pastors 
people in the you know Southern Baptist Church who have been accused allegations of sexual assault and um, mistreatment of women. That's not good theology. So, so um, I'm anticipating uh, a certain kind of response to to one thing that you you said. You, you said that we've been teaching people that that uh, our kids that some people are just better than other people. Yep. Right? Uh, and the and by that I take it at least one thing that you mean is that well there's at least you know roughly fifty percent of the population right. that's better than roughly uh, the other fifty fifty percent that's exactly right yeah right? Um, and the and the and the the answer that you're gonna get all right I mean you know what's coming right but oh yeah like, no 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 it's right. uh, not not no we're, no we're all sort of equally created yes. in the image of God we're just different there's just we're just different so what's right. your yeah, no, this is one of the things. And in fact, some people who know me well know that I have gotten increasingly impatient with folk who argue that, you know, this, you know, just let me be a woman. I can just be a woman, you know, difference. Our difference is distinctive. And if you say that um, women can teach and preach and lead, then what you're saying is that there are no distinctiveness between gender roles. And my argument is no, you have been taught that if we argue that women and men are spiritually equal before God and are called in exactly the same ways, you have been taught that that means we are whitewashing, whitewashing, that's actually a good word, um, whitewashing out the gender distinctiveness. And this is so far from the truth. Um, so I have, a, I could talk about this for forever because it is one of my, one of my great pet peeves um, and it's dangerous. It's one, it's it, one of their key moves. Yes, it's like, it is. It, it, it's, it's, there's the proof texting and then the other move is when you try to like you know use like logic on them and show like well this is <laughs> this is really at odds yeah. with like the the whole uh, the whole tenor the whole thrust of christianity what you're doing here they go right. well no 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 we're not saying that men and women aren't equal obviously they're equal they're just they're just you different. know different and god different. calls them to different things yeah and it just and so happens that the stuff i think women are supposed like called to do it just, it just so it just so happens that that's the stuff i don't want to do Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so a couple, I think a couple of things there. First of all, my go-to for that is Dorothy L. Sayers and lots of Christians have read Dorothy L. Sayers today, but they've read her mostly in the terms of classical education. Um, they actually haven't read her in terms of what she argues about women. And actually in general, Dorothy L. Sayers was kind of irritated with sort of this whole women, men debate. And she actually, you know, she mostly just was like, we, why are we talking about this? And the reason she argued that, I mean, in the core of her argument about women and men is she said, look, women and men are created together in the image of God. And she said, we focus so much on the differences between women and men, but what we should be focusing on is their shared humanity. And so I think, you know, my response to them is like, you, you can have it both ways. Women, you know, if you want to, you know, I, I am a woman. Um, I completely identify as a woman. Um, I'm married. I have children. Um, you know, I, I do all of those things that we associate with being a woman. It doesn't mean you can't do those things. It just means that what we need to focus on you know, focusing on difference has always gotten us in trouble. What we need to focus on is our shared humanity that is made in the image of God. 
And that is where, so it's not saying we can't be different or that you can't do, I mean, obviously biologically women have children, men do not, you know, or at least birth them through our bodies. Um, but one of the things from, you know, my expertise as a medieval scholar um, is that the medieval world too was rife with patriarchy, but it emphasized much more than the modern Protestant world that both women and men were a part in God's salvation story. And the emphasis that it put on that God chose, that God used a woman, a woman's body to bring salvation to the world was just as important as the fact that God chose a man's body to be the savior, that God became a man. God became a man to use, you know, to bring salvation, but it came through the body of a woman. This is not missed on medieval people. It is missed on modern Christians today. Um, we, I mean, very rarely do we emphasize the fact that this is not, that it was God used all of humanity to bring about his plan to save all of humanity. And so, and he used it, yes, indeed, the distinctive differences, you know, is through a woman's body. But at the same time, this idea of spiritual equality really should open the door. If you truly believe that women are spiritually equal to men, it should open the door for women to be called in the same ways as men. All of the rules that we have put on what women can and cannot do have been forced from outside the church. And if you read what the Bible is doing, it is mostly pushing against those things, mostly deconstructing those things. You know, even in First Peter, which seems to be one of the harshest household codes, what Peter is doing when he points out that women are the weaker sex, he's not saying women are weaker. And so therefore, you know, there's something about them that means that you are in authority over them. No, no, women are weaker because our world always treats women as weaker. Men need to recognize that and treat them as co-heirs, which is what he says. He says, women are co-heirs with you in Christ. That's revolutionary. It is not focusing on women's weaknesses. So I'll stop there. I can preach all day. <laughs> no, well, so, so you point, when you point to um, the, I guess the, the focusing on like how, how men and women are different, right? That right. Um, it's sort of boring, right? <laughs> and so what, what, what I've observed about, and this, this, this touches on one of the, uh, one of the earlier uh, points about per perhaps uh, how we might be situated. <laughs> well, did I say something wrong? No, I just think that's really funny. Boring. I mean, that's, yes, it is. It's just boring. It's very boring. It just is. And so, no, no. So this gets to an, uh, an earlier point about how, how we might be situated for a kind of um, like re-reformation or something. Right. Um, because when you look at some of the, I'm going to use air quotes, the literature, right. right. Uh, that comes out of these circles. Uh, a lot of it is like, oh, men and women are different. Look at the differences. Here's what men are like. And you know, on and on and on. And I'm, I'm just thinking like, how did, how did this person even write this? Like, how did yes. they, how did they stay awake to write this? I don't, I, I just don't. And there's like lots of adverbs and there's no, there, there's no sense that you're even in the presence of an argument. It's just no. lists of differences. Well, and so when I look at the sort of the, the people who are, uh, let's say younger than baby boomers, right? right. Maybe younger than like halfway through Gen X that are defending these kinds of views they're not very talented. And that's We won't call me, names. What's that? Yeah, no, yeah, no, we're not, certainly we're not here to name names. But, um, but say what you will about the, the older 
uh, generation of folks that are promoting this kind of stuff, they're, they're at least in some ways clever. Yes. Right? Uh, the, yes. the younger people who are, who are positioning themselves for the mantle of power, they're not very clever. No, they are not at all. And it's, you know, I think it's interesting that you call it boring. And I think, I think part of that is, you know, when we say that women are distinctive from men and that, you know, let me be a woman. I've heard that all the time. You know, this is a cry of Elizabeth Elliot without really contextualizing what Elizabeth Elliot was speaking against and not really understanding who Elizabeth Elliot was. Um, you know, I think we use her without totally understanding what she's carrying to that interpretation. And she was speaking out against a lot of things and a lot of damage in her own life that had sort of hurt her. But when we emphasize, you know, sort of this, what women are supposed to do as a American, as a modern American who studies the medieval and global past, none of these characteristics of women apply outside of Western, the Western world. And they only really apply to an upper middle class white world. Once you carry this idea, and I'm using air quotes here, biblical womanhood to the global world, it completely falls apart because their culture is so much, because this concept of biblical womanhood, this concept of women who are divinely ordained to be underneath the authority of their husbands and to mostly be focused on house and hearth and children and their careers should always be secondary. Oh my gosh, this is an elitist framework that only works for very wealthy families in particular circumstances. It does not work for people in Africa, for people in South America, for people in rural America. It doesn't work for our black Christians, brothers and sisters. You know, this they were never actually put within this framework um, because this was something that white women did. And it was something that elevated white women above black women who had to work, whereas we did not because we were better. And so, you know, I just, we just don't understand how much of this framework of biblical womanhood and this emphasis on the distinctiveness of women is not only class-based, but it's also race-based. Um, and it doesn't apply to most of the world. And I think Jesus came for all the world. I don't think he came for just white upper-class Europeans. Well, and, and, the, and the possibility of even, even for the majority of uh, those who are now, say, upper middle class white folks, that the, the very uh, possibility of this kind of arrangement was conditioned by massive government redistribution of wealth through the federal housing yes. administration. Yes, right? I learned about that from you and Kristen talking about that. I was like, oh yeah, the GI right. Bill and all of this, that was part of this. Yes, right. that post-World War II. And so you point to in your, in your book, right? Um, uh, it was uh, Mrs. Miss she Lewis went by Ball. her husband. Miss what, Lewis who? Ball. Miss yes, Lewis yes, 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 right. Yeah. So that was Wasn't what the thirties. Yes, that's in the thirties. Right. Yeah, so that's right before this. This you know, yeah. at the mid-century, where this sort of new traditional right. air quotes traditional between World War One and World War Two is when she has this. Yeah. So right. yeah, 
this is why history has been the missing piece to understanding gender roles. And it's not that it doesn't take liberal feminist interpretations. It simply takes looking back at the historical context and understanding where these gender roles came from um, and why we have this assumption. And it is, I mean, it's, it's a lot of it is in this restoration of the post-World War II period in trying to get the men home, trying to get them psychologically into jobs after going through this horrible experience, redistributing the wealth through the government to help get these men education, but at the same time, excluding many of those men, like men of color, um, from participating in this. And so getting these white men this education that they need so that they can get the jobs where their wives don't have to work um, and they can stay home with, and also to get the women out of their jobs so that the men can take them once they get education. I mean, this was a whole system that was created. Um, it's sort of also like, you know, if we look in the 19th century, the same sort of thing happened with industrialization in the 18th and the 19th centuries in which we have this problem where if when work moves outside the home and we put both women and men working in the home, what are we supposed to do with the kids? Um, you know, and so they developed this idea. They were like, well, one thing we'll do is we won't pay women as much. And in fact, I quote one of these um, in the book, we won't pay women as much because really their natural job straight from, um, you know, Rousseau, who was not a Christian, um, women's natural job is to stay home with children. They're scientifically, you know, made to do that. So we're going to pay them less to not encourage them to go out and work, but understand that, you know, sometimes they might need to work. So we'll just pay them really low wages. And so this already creates a system where men get paid more. Men are the ones who are expected to go out. And women, because of the design of their bodies, which makes them um, so distinctly different from men that they are not intellectually capable of leadership. That's the argument about women's bodies. And so therefore let's create a system that keeps them at home and let's create a system that elevates men. And we almost see the same sort of system appearing in the 1950s, you know, after in 1940s and 50s. Um, and it does, it closes the door on women like Miss Lewis Ball, who was a, um, you know, was a popular evangelist in 1930s Baptist circles. Yeah, it's odd how how um, they just sort of like, uh, you know, one day uh, may maybe women are supposed to be working, like maybe helping out in the field or something, and then all of a sudden a factory goes up next door, and you just have this insight that oh actually women are supposed to be at home. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's funny. It's one of the things I also mentioned, you know, two continuities in women's lives throughout history. One continuity is that women are always fighting against structures that say they are less than men. Um, and while women have not always had what we call a feminist consciousness, there are women in every era and every place speak out against the structures um, that harm them and harm other women in their areas. Uh, Christina Pizan is a really good example of this. Um, so one continuity has been women, these systems that oppress women that women recognize. The other continuity is that women have always worked. Um, you know, aside from care, you know, bearing children, women have always been critical parts of the workforce. Um, but because of the system of patriarchy, women have always been paid less than men. This is a really striking continuity that we find. And we have different reasons for why women should be paid less men. You know, that's part of my argument in the book is that our understanding and our reasons for why women 
should be at home, are not able to lead, should get paid less. They change according to our culture. They're not consistent, um, which tells us that they are built upon the ever-changing world of human history rather than on divinely ordained principles of God. And I was going to say, that's sort of like a third continuity, right? Is that it's always shifting. Yes, it's always shifting. No, it is indeed. You know, yeah. it's it's shifting. It's it's a shapeshifter. Patriarchy yeah. is a shapeshifter. And even for Christians, it has shapeshifted. And so that's, I wonder if this is one of one of the things that you, uh, your book has helped me uh, sort of start to clarify in my own mind is um, I think that one, one way to attack these kinds of systems of thought because they're very they're, it's a closed system right right and, yes. and so you can't you, you you have to you have to appeal to things that uh the people within the system will, will sort of like recognize as legitimate and it, right. and, it's, it and it's difficult because like um it everything is coded right yes. so, so so the proof texts have their meaning and you can't and if you argue with that <laughs> right. meaning then you're what you're well, outside the system parenting. Yeah, right. you're outside the system. It's right, the right, slippery right. slope. Right. So these folks who defend this hierarchy, they see themselves as the defenders of objective moral truth. Right. And so one, one sort of foothold I think we might be able to get is to say, you know, um, you do realize, of course, that your moral beliefs are changing like right. decade to decade, if not month to month. Yes. <laughs> And yet you claim to be defending objective moral truth. So right. there's, there's a contradiction there that you must recognize. And, and how are you going to deal with this? Right. No, that's exactly right. I mean, that's, you know, if, if, you, if you want to paint broad brush, before the Reformation, the women, reason women couldn't preach, teach, and lead in churches was because their bodies were considered to be inferior to male bodies. This is built on the Greco-Roman understanding that women are corrupt men, that there's something deformed about the female body that is less good and less perfect than the male body. Um, and so for that reason, women shouldn't teach, preach, or lead. Now, the caveat to this was that women could escape their sex. Um, so in the medieval world, if women rejected their roles as their sexed roles as wives and mothers, um, then and you know claimed virginity, or even sometimes just moving beyond motherhood, it's you know in the global world, motherhood was actually something that would help elevate women. Um, they usually got rid of their husbands, you know, rejected their husbands and moved on, but they could still be mothers. But if you rejected your sexed role, um, and then you could be authorized to preach, teach, and lead, which is why we have medieval preachers like Hildegard of Bingen, who went on preaching tours. Um, this is why the medieval world saw no contradiction between saying men, it's men who can be priests, but Mary Magdalene was the apostle to the apostles. And that was her title in the medieval world. She was the apostle to the apostles, and she was a preacher who carried the gospel to Western Europe. How did it get to Western Europe? It was Mary Magdalene sent by Peter, according to medieval tradition. This is not based on scripture. This is a medieval story, but it's what they believed. And so there's no contradiction because Mary Magdalene, they saw as rising above her sex. She kind of, there was a loophole. And so she could preach, teach, and lead. With the Reformation, and this I think is one of the most critical things for women and men to understand, is that the Reformation theology really should have set women free. Because Reformation theology said, hey, women's bodies aren't deformed. We are created in the image of God, just like men. So women 
should have been able to preach, teach, and lead as God called them at that moment. The problem is, is the existence of patriarchy. And so the Christian church had to come up with a new reason to exclude women from leadership roles. And this is when they start emphasizing Paul. And so they take five or six verses and they say, because of this, that women are called to stay at home and to be under male authority and to not be preachers. Um, what's really interesting is that a lot of women in the 17th and you know 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, they didn't accept this because they believed in reformation. They believed in the theology that set them free. And so they tried to make cases. This is why we get all these preaching women um, running around because they're like, hello, no, Jesus set me free. I can preach just like you, I'm called. Um, but the patriarchal standards continue to push them down. And by the time we got to the 19th century, we have the introduction of the cult of domesticity, which mm -hmm. says women and men are distinctly different, created distinctly different. Women cannot be leaders and teachers and preachers. Yeah, so, so I think one obstacle um, for, so, uh, for some people, I, this was, this was, um, this was sort of a lingering question in my head mm -hmm. until somewhat recently um, to, to just accepting like, you know, men and women are just equal. Cause it could, there are gradations of this, right? There are people right. who say like women can't be pastors, but like, that's it. Right. And then there are people who say like that, who go on with the cult of domesticity and all of that. Right. There, yeah. There yes. Of it. There's um, huge variation. Right. So, so I think one sort of obstacle to just going all, you know, accepting all the way, right? Like mm -hmm. men and women just equal would be something like this. So Chesterton has this story about a gate, right? And, and he said, you're, you're familiar? A little bit. Yeah. Okay. One of my good friends was a 17th century. Anyway, so yes, because I read everybody's PhD dissertations. I'm familiar <laughs> with a lot of things. <laughs> So, so he tells a story about a gate that's like, uh, like bisecting a path in town. Yep. And uh, it's really inconvenient for everybody. Everybody's like, why is this gate? We're going to get rid of this gate. We're just going to get rid of the gate, right? Because it's obviously a terrible idea. And Chesterton says, well, um, you better not touch the gate until you can tell me why the gate was there to begin with, right? Only then can you move the gate. Yeah. Right. And so one sort of uh, until recently outstanding question in my mind was like, okay, well then why has this been the case historically? Right. Because I'm not, I'm not convinced by the proof texts. I'm not, you know, I don't, mm -hmm. it, 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 it actually doesn't even make a whole lot of sense to me. Right. Uh, but there's gotta be some reason why Christians have done this without exception for the last 2000 years. Right. Yeah. And then I read your book and it's like, oh, okay. They haven't. But right. to the extent they have, it's not because of Christianity. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. You know, I mean, and that's what I think, um, you know, two things for that. First of all, women and men have always recognized that there shouldn't be these limitations on women and that women should. I mean, there, there, this is a constant that we have women and men speaking out against this throughout and saying, this is not what Jesus says. You know, yes, you know, Paul says wives are to submit. Then, you know, in the medieval world, some folk are like, okay, well, then if you're not a wife, you don't have to do this and you can preach, teach, and lead just like men. Um, so, you know, there's all of these, there's people who always speak out against it. Women especially speak out against this frequently. And I note many of those women within uh, my book. Uh, but then at the same time, we have to understand that Christianity was born in a system 
in a world system that subordinates women to men. And if you look in the Old Testament, if you look at the readings of the Old Testament, um, you know, often what you see is you see God pushing against, you know, the, the Hebrew people are always trying to build hierarchies. You know, they want a king. God says, you don't need a king. Um, you know, they want to be like the other people around them. God says, you don't need to be like the other people around them. You know, they keep trying, they keep trying to institute these hierarchies. I mean, you can even think about the image of the Tower of Babel, you know, trying to build a tower to God. I think that means a whole lot of different things. And um, I think a natural impulse of human sinfulness and if you believe in total depravity, then, you know, human sinfulness is that we are always trying, the way we identify ourselves, the way we create our identity is often in opposition to other people. You know, we are under this person because of these reasons. We are over these people because of these reasons. This is built into the human condition. You know, um, I teach ancient history, so I often teach Confucius. And if you look at his five relationships, you know, completely outside of the Christian system at all, but teaching that there is this innate hierarchy where some people are should always be over other people. Women are always in these five relationships to be under the authority of men. This is not a Christian teaching. It is in ancient China. Um, so I think that this impulse for us to create these hierarchies is clearly, history clearly shows us it is not in the Bible. It is something we bring to the Bible and it is something that God continuously tries to push us out of without success. So it is, you know, and that really is, I think if people understood that piece, if people are willing to listen to that piece, then maybe we can finally start to pull Christianity, the gospel of Christ away from these oppressive hierarchies that hurt people and damage the witness of Jesus. Is there anything that I should have asked you uh, that I didn't or that you'd like to emphasize or, or point out? Um, so, well, did I answer all your questions? Did you have other things? I just or, want to have a conversation that was interesting yeah, okay. and, and we've succeeded. Well, good. Yes, we so. have. I mean, this is, this is all fun. Um, I think two things that I really, I've been, whenever anybody asks me this, that I, I want to say, yes, I want, I want people to hear this. Um, and the most important, I think really is I want evangelical women to know that they can be faithful Christians, that they can faithfully adhere to scripture, that they can faithfully believe in Jesus and all that Jesus is and did, um, that they can believe the Bible is trustworthy and they cannot accept complementarianism. You do not have to accept complementarianism to be a faithful Bible-believing Christian. And I really want, especially women, but also men, I want them to know this. And the second thing that I really want um, Christians to understand and want them to examine is I want them to examine the fruit of these hierarchical teachings within their own life and how inconsistent they are. I mean, how inconsistently they are applied um, and really grapple with the damaging nature of these teachings, you know, some women may be like, well, it doesn't hurt me. Well, what does it do to other women? You know, if, if this is truth, then it should be good for all women. And it's not, it is severely damaging 
um, to so, so many people. And so I want them to really grapple with the inconsistency of biblical womanhood, of Christian patriarchy, and really put it up against, this is what Beth Moore asked. She said, I want to grapple, grapple with the entire New Testament from, you know, from the beginning to the end and look at all of the ways that women are discussed and not just through the lens of Timothy, Corinthians, and Colossians, Peter, etc. I want to grapple with the whole thing. And what she was getting at was the fact that those five or six verses that say, potentially say that women can't preach or teach or lead, go against the women who we know are preaching and teaching and leading, just look at Romans 16, as well as the way that Jesus always reached out to women. And so we have to grapple with that. And we have to understand that we can be faithful Christians and believe that God calls women and men to do many of the same things. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thanks um, for having me. And thank you for your book, uh, which was excellent. And um, I highly recommend well, Melissa, and I, Melissa and I both. And, and she wanted me to convey to you that she's, she's a big fan. Well, good. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And